0: Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries.
1: Hi, I'm Rahul Chatterjee, co-host of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Chlora. Flora is a two-sided marketplace that leverages software to match top-tier life sciences expertise to biotech companies in order to accelerate and de-risk development. I'm excited to welcome Robert Gould, President and Chief Executive Officer of Fulcrum Therapeutics, and Owen Wallace, Fulcrum's Chief Scientific Officer. Thanks to both of you for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: So Robert and Owen, uh, we'd love to just start off and have you provide your background and how you got to where you are today and working together.
2: So this is uh, Robert Gould. I actually have a PhD in biochemistry that I got many decades ago in 1984. I started at Merck Research Labs in Pennsylvania. My PhD was in lipid biochemistry, so I extracted phospholipids from egg yolk and studied the physical properties of those phospholipids. Along the way, I had to take a pharmacology course as one of my electives, and I became fascinated with the concept of taking chemical and chemical matter and understanding how you changed people's life from a life of disease to a life of health. And so I did a postdoctoral research in neuropharmacology, studying that time the effect of various psychoactive drugs in the brain. I spent about three years at Johns Hopkins doing that and realized that drug discovery in the brain in the eighties was a Promethean task that probably was not going to get accomplished easily. By then I was totally infatuated with pharmacology and how you discovered agents that improved the life of people. And so I started my career at Merck Research Labs in West Point, Pennsylvania, and a very exciting thing actually happened to me there, which is the very first project I got put on was characterizing a drug and a compound that I actually use today, a drug that many of you may have heard of called Pepsid. Merck in-licensed Pepsid from a Japanese company called Yamanuchi. And my first job was to ensure that the preclinical data we were getting from Yamanuchi could be replicated. That just fed my thirst for making drugs even more. Fast forward uh, 24 years, I, I then was running drug discovery at the West Point, Pennsylvania site with a variety of therapeutic areas and a large group of about 500 people. And by then the world had moved on. And what had happened was that People were understanding that no longer did you need to use animal models, animal cells. In fact, the human genome was sequenced. The effect of genomics on disease was clear. I took advantage of an early retirement package from Merck and went to the Broad Institute here in Cambridge. The Broad Institute is a leader in in sequencing disease states, animals. And I really wanted to learn how to apply that kind of genomic sequencing to drug discovery. The fascinating thing for me along, along the way of that time at Merck was the evolution of the world from a world of find a compound, look for a disease and hope it works to a world of understand the disease, understand the target, understand the mechanism. And the Broad just reinforced that for me. I had the opportunity to uh, be CEO then of an oncology drug discovery company called Epizyme that was studying epigenetic regulation of genes Uh, particularly in genetically defined cancers. So epigenetics is a system that sits sort of on top of the genome regulating gene expression and disruptions in a number of those kinds of enzymes actually cause solid tumors as well as bloodborne tumors. So my first stint as a a CEO was actually running Epizyme. That was a venture backed company. I had the opportunity to take that company public to progress a, a number of compounds into the clinic and then actually retired from there as well thinking that it was time to spend more time with my long suffering wife who uh, had put up with decades of me being uh, in the lab and researching and took about a year off and then became interested and fascinated with applying some of those principles into a different area which led me to be at Fulcrum so that's a very long-winded uh, history of my my uh, life in pharma industry but it's been just fascinating to see how drug discovery is changed over those 30 years or so.
0: Well, it certainly sounds also like uh, you've seen uh, the broad spectrum of company as well, right? From the large to the midsize to the emerging biotech.
2: I have. So I've had just such a wonderful opportunity to take lessons that you learn at big companies that have done it over and over again, and then think about how do you apply those lessons, not only the lessons of how do you manage teams and I often say uh, drug discovery is perhaps the ultimate intellectual team sport, so you have to understand how to manage teams as well as to make important scientific decisions because the health and wellness of people actually lies in your hand.
0: Owen, uh, I'd love to learn a little bit about you and your background and how you got to where you are today.
3: So I'm a medicinal chemist by training. Uh, I completed my PhD in organic chemistry in the mid 1990s, and my intent was always to go into the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, the thought of being able to do something that would impact a, a broad population, would impact human society, and and impact human health was was very appealing to me. So I joined uh, Bristol Myers Squibb straight out of my PhD, and like Robert, my first program actually was in neuroscience as well. Um, my first program was in Alzheimer's disease, uh, working on the amyloid cascade. We are here 25 years later and we still don't have a robust drug for Alzheimer's disease and, and the amyloid cascade has yet to be fully validated. So. It just highlights the uh, challenges that we face in the field and, and the length of time it actually takes to solve these problems. I also worked on virology when I was at uh, Bristol Myers Squibb. I worked on an HIV program, which I started with another biology colleague, and that molecule now has just been filed for, for an NDA. So, again, decades later, uh, there may be fruition and and there may be the potential to get this uh, onto the pharmacy shelf and and help patients, which again is what I had set out to do. I left uh, Bristol Myers Squibb and then I joined Eli Lilly and Company in the Midwest I worked on a variety of different therapeutic areas there, uh, initially in uh, endocrine, worked on diabetes programs, I, I worked in women's health disorders, and I then moved back to neuroscience again, where I, I led the medicinal chemistry team in the neuroscience programs for several years. In 2010, I was asked to take on an assignment as the site head in the United Kingdom, Uh, Lilly had a research site about 30 miles outside London, and I went over with my family there and spent uh, three fantastic years at the site working on, again, Alzheimer's programs and and schizophrenia programs. Uh, And it was a a great experience and also gave me a taste, I think, for biotech. It was a much smaller site than corporate headquarters in Indianapolis for Lilly, There were about 200 researchers, so I got to know everybody well. I knew their names. I knew their their families, their spouses, and that was an environment that I I really enjoyed and thrived in. I moved back to the U.S. and moved to Novartis in in 2013 here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and and worked across a variety of areas as well. Neuroscience, once again, chemical genetics, respiratory diseases, and, and several other Therapeutic areas also. But I I had an itch that I needed to scratch. And and, uh, I think the itch was the one to get back into a smaller environment again where I'd know everybody, where I'd really feel close to the science, close to the the team. So when the opportunity to join Fulcrum came along, actually three years ago, it really was a no brainer for me. I, I was very excited about the team, I was very excited about the potential of the science. And I felt that, again, there was a line of sight between what we were trying to accomplish and the patients we were trying to help. And that was hugely exciting to me. And and I I didn't really need to think twice when I was offered the, the role. And it's been a fantastic experience over the last three years.
1: Great, Owen. Thank you for that. Robert, as a next step, as many of our listeners are entrepreneurs, we'd love to start with the founding story of Fulcrum and the venture creation model that was a big part of the founding story
2: yeah so as i'd mentioned i I was previously at an oncology drug discovery company looking at the role of a, a class of enzymes to regular gene expression that generally fall under this category of epigenetics, and actually left that company as a number of compounds were progressing through the clinic took about a year off, but in the course of that year, I began thinking about how how do you tie the lessons of regular gene expression with active small molecules. So taking advantage of all the learnings of the genome sequencing that had happened, all of the learnings that are coming out of oncology and precision medicine, and apply those to other genetically defined diseases. And coincidentally, at the same time in parallel, Third Rock Ventures uh, had a, an initiative to address that internally having conversation with some of the Third Rock partners and realized that things that I had been thinking about as I was sitting on my retirement boards and things completely overlaid with concepts that they were thinking about. And of course, that's the perfect marriage of intellectual stimulation when you meet another group that's thinking along the same lines as you are slightly differently, but along those same lines, because then you can really take advantage of the collective genius that happens when you get thinking about the same problem from different Orientation, and different angles. And the Third Rock Venture model is really one of putting together smart people and then forming companies around ideas that occur when people bounce ideas off of each other, when they're slated by each other's thoughts. And then uh, that dialogue comes the concept of how do we build a company around these ideas? And that's really when I became involved with Third Rock. How do we build a company around the concept that we can use small molecules to regulate gene expression? Outside of the field of oncology, so I began having that conversation with Third Rock around uh, of March of 2016, and by June we had uh, had incubated it had got enough traction within Rock uh, that between Third Rock Ventures and Google Ventures uh, we were able to start the company with a 60 million Series A around this concept of treating root cause of diseases with small molecules to regulate gene expression. So it, that was just a, a, an exciting conversation to have with the partners at Third Rock as we began to imagine how we could create a world in which we could do that.
1: Great. Thanks, Robert. I'd love to hear your thoughts on you know the, the future of the venture creation model and the both the pros and, and if there's any disadvantages to that model currently and how Third Rock was able to act as an accelerant for, for you all, because you've certainly achieved a lot in a, in a short period of time.
2: So I think the venture model is really at the at the core of innovation in the pharmaceutical industry. We sometimes talk about biotech, referring only to the small companies, lots of biotechnology goes on in big companies as well. But I think the distinguishing feature of the venture model And there's many different versions of the venture model. The distinguishing feature is is really the one of putting a group of highly motivated people together to attack a biological problem that they're passionate about and applying and ensuring that they have resources to address that biological problem. Now, there's different ways to do that. You can do milestone-driven payments. You can do... Third Rock has the model of ensuring that the company has enough funding in the Series A. We started with $60 to really prove in the first year or two, whether the concept had legs to run or not. Uh, and I think that's really important that you have not only a very well-defined deliverable, but you also have financial will and the focus to get through that first year or two of getting the company off the ground. There's a lot to getting the company off the ground. Another model that Third Rock has and, and that the venture model um, it's really part the concept of let's put the structure around the company so that a scientifically oriented CEO like me or a business-oriented CEO doesn't have to spend the first year putting together a resources structure or putting together a financial structure or putting together you know all of the things that you need to create a, a company where people want to work. And one of the things that Third Rock does is apply that structure right from the beginning. And I think that's an asset of building a company that can very quickly do what it's set up to do. Can we make a medicine that helps people?
0: Wonderful. I mean, it certainly sounds like an interesting model that will allow you to focus on the science and ultimately the patient, right? Mm-hmm. Owen, oh, would love to hear a little bit about your perspective as CSO on some of the core capabilities and the platform you've developed at Fulcrum and the kind of uh, targets you guys are able to identify and go after.
3: Yeah. So as Robert mentioned, our approach is really to rebalance gene expression in in genetically defined diseases and a lot of science has been done over the last decades that have suggested that many diseases have a genetic root cause and the name of the company is is named after uh, how we propose to do this. So essentially disease is caused by a misbalance in gene expression and, and we're at the fulcrum to tip that in the right direction. So our approach is to target the root cause of these diseases. So we know what the genetic deficit is. We know which gene is being misexpressed. And now we're looking initially for targets, but ultimately in our approach, we're looking for small molecule therapeutics that will uh, rebalance that gene expression. So in some cases, for example, in our sickle cell disease program, we're looking to upregulate a gene. This one is responsible for the expression of fetal hemoglobin. And in some diseases, we're trying to downregulate the expression of a, a gene For example, our program in fascio humeral dystrophy, or FSHD, we're looking to downregulate a gene called Dux4. And we believe that in order to be able to study these systems in the most robust way, we need to do it in a relevant preclinical model. And we believe that the most relevant models for this kind of work are patient-derived differentiated cell systems. So this would mean a a neuron, for example, in the case of a CNS disorder, or a myotube in the, the example of a neuromuscular disorder, for example. So we want to make sure that we're looking at the regulatory system in the context that it finds itself in a patient. And these patient-derived cell systems are are the best approach in our mind. With the cellular biology and the cell modeling in hand, we then turn our attention to actually finding these targets. And we've got uh, three different general approaches for target identification. The first one is to screen a proprietary library that we've generated of what are called probe molecules. So these are molecules with known biochemical targets that have cellular activity and potency, and they've never previously been linked with the disease that we're interested in. But the pharmacology of these probe molecules is is well-characterized. So the idea is once we see the gene of interest change in our screen, we can go back to the annotation and link that change to a specific target that we believe then can be drugged and we can initiate our, our medicinal chemistry efforts on. The second approach for target identification is to use CRISPR screening. So We've got, again, a proprietary CRISPR library that looks at complementary biology to that covered in our small molecule probe library. And our third approach for target identification is computational biology. And here we're using both internal data sets and external data sets to develop hypotheses around pathways, around specific targets, nodes that potentially could impact the regulation of a gene. And all of this is now going into a, a database that, that we call FulcrumSeq, which contains the effect of perturbagens. So a perturbogen could be a small molecule or it could be a, a CRISPR guide across now multiple different cell types and looking at many, many different readouts, many, many different features of the cell. So it could be cell morphology, it could be some process that's going on in the cell. It could be the expression of many, many genes. And we're looking to look at thousands of these different features in response to our molecules. And this provides a very unique understanding of what's going on at a cellular level, allowing us now then to identify targets and advance programs into our medicinal chemistry program. This work has given rise to our our two lead programs. As I mentioned, one of them is looking to upregulate fetal hemoglobin. There is a lot of data from human genetics to suggest that individuals who have a mutation that should give rise to sickle cell disease, but also have a mutation that results in fetal hemoglobin not being turned off. And normally it's turned off within the first six months after birth. These individuals actually are often asymptomatic. They don't have the symptoms of sickle cell disease. So our approach was to look for small molecule upregulators of fetal hemoglobin, initially targets, and then ultimately molecules to the medicinal chemistry program. And uh, we identified a a target that does exactly what we want preclinically. Our medicinal chemistry team has done a a great job in developing the the clinical candidate. And we were able to go from a screening hit from, from a target identification hypothesis to that development candidate in about two years, which I I think is a a great credit to our our team. Our our second program that came from our product engine, from our platform, which is now in phase 2B clinical studies, is for this muscle dystrophy that I mentioned, FSHD. And again, in, in this case, we identified a target called P38 that regulated the expression of a toxic protein called DUX4. And we were fortunate enough to be able to now access chemical matter externally uh, and in-license it that allowed us to move very quickly. So in this case, we went from our target identification screen to the initiation of a phase two trial in about two years. So we, we think there's a great validation for our general approach. There are about 7,000 rare diseases, many of them with a, a genetic component. And we think that there's general applicability to, to many of these using our approach that I described.
0: Well, I we appreciate you sort of giving us that overview of you know, some of the competitive advantage you've been developing internally and, as well as the data sets. You know, maybe if either of you could comment on, especially in the in the case of FSHD, it sounds like it was something that you guys had brought in from an external partner. Would love to learn a little bit about uh, that process and, you know, how that uh, collaboration came about.
2: Yeah, it's it's really an interesting uh, story how that happened. As Owen mentioned, we, we were using muscle cells from patients with this form of muscular dystrophy, FSH dystrophy to look for mechanisms to turn off this toxic protein, uh, Dux4. And as he mentioned, as we curried this system, we realized that this enzyme, P38, uh, was a key regulator of the inappropriate expression of Dux4, this, this toxic protein that's killing the muscle. You know, one advantage of having been in the industry for 30 years is you, you remember programs that occurred in the past, and P38 was one such program. Almost every pharmaceutical company had a program looking for inhibitors of this particular kinase, P38, at one point in the history of the companies. In fact, about 16 different P38 inhibitors actually went into the clinic or to various levels of the clinic. They all were based on the same assumption, which is a, a true assumption. That is that P38 plays a critical role in Inflammation pathways, and therefore, by blocking P38, you could stop inflammation and you could stop inflammatory diseases like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or acute coronary syndrome or rheumatoid arthritis. The list goes on and on about inflammation driven diseases that P38 was speculated to have a role in. What nobody uh, knew at the time and and didn't appreciate is that, that P38 was being inappropriately usurped in this disease to drive the Dux4 expression, the myotoxic protein. We made that discovery at Fulcrum. And then we looked at the 16 or so compounds that had previously been in the clinic. And this one from uh, GSK really distinguished itself in our hands. First of all, it it was potent. It was very effective at reducing this Dux4 in the muscle cells. It had just an extraordinary safety profile. GSK had looked in about 10 different indications Exposed about 3,500 people to the drug, and it looked just just very, very clean from a safety point of view. That was highly important to us, not, not only just from first principles, uh, you, you want to have a safe drug. But in this particular disease, it's really important that we have an experience of safety over a period of time. This is a slowly progressing disease. It often presents in the late adolescence, early 20s, and then progresses over the next several decades of life. People with FSH actually lead a normal life. They just become increasingly unable to lift their hands above their shoulders. Many of them will eventually end up in a wheelchair as their hip muscles and leg muscles are affected, but they lead a normal life. So you, safety had to be paramount for us. And this drug from GSK, losmapimod, just had an extraordinary safety profile. We also benefited from the fact that GSK had discontinued development from an, of it as an anti-inflammatory because it didn't work in these chronic anti-inflammatory states. The pharmacology was robust. It was very well done. It was very safe but it just didn't work in a chronic inflammatory disorder. In fact, they looked in 10 different indications and it just wasn't effective as the original premise was. So we contacted GSK, presented to them our scientific story. And like us, they found that story extremely compelling. They had discontinued the drug. It was sitting on their shelf. And so they gave us not only all of the clinical data that they had generated on the drug, but also quantities of active pharmaceutical ingredient as well as drug product, which really enabled us to jumpstart very quickly into a phase two study within about six months or so of obtaining the license for the compound. It's just a great story of compelling science is being discovered on the, all the time about even on what targets that people... Uh, have known for a couple of decades. It just shows we actually don't know as much as we think we do about human biology.
1: You just mentioned that you know you were able to draw on some previous experience to guide development activities at, at Fulcrum. And over the last five to 10 years or so, there's been quite an exodus of executives leaving big pharma and joining early stage biotechs, where a lot of innovation is, is now centralized across our industry. If you were to reflect back and, and Owen would love to hear uh, your thoughts on this as well. But as you reflect back on your experience, what was the biggest change in mindset that you had to make going from you know big pharma to early stage biotech, or, or maybe asking it another way, you know what would you tell your your younger self when mm-hmm. you were uh, just starting out at, at Fulcrum?
2: You know the, the thing that I've had to learn over and over again, which was very different from when I was at Merck, was the importance of telling a compelling scientific story to capture the heart and imagination of people, because that's the way you capture the funding you need to get the drug to the patients. You know, the, the old tired horse of a, a way to a person's heart is through their stomach. Uh, the, the way to ensure that you have the resources to bring effective, ther- potentially effective therapies to patients is capture the mind and the heart of the people who, who are willing to partner with you by sharing the risk with you, by giving you the resources, financial resources to build the company. And that comes back to telling an exciting story that's based on facts. You know, an exciting scientific story that's not based on fact is uh, an Isaac Asimov science fiction story. And we, we don't want to do that. We want to tell exciting science stories that are based on fact. That is what I would tell myself as a, a younger self, be sure that you pay attention to the rigor of the science, but capture the heart and minds of the audience around you. You don't learn that in scientific training. Yeah, that's a great point, Robert.
1: Um, Owen, a- any any additional thoughts there on on a shift in mindset that you needed to enable?
3: Yeah, I think um, if I were talking to myself, you know, 20, 25 years ago, I'd probably have a conversation around the definition of risk Uh, When I joined the pharmaceutical industry, biotech just seemed very risky to me, and it was one of the reasons I chose to go into a large company. And over the course of the 25 years or so, it's become apparent to me that there's just very different definitions of of risk. I'm not sure a pharma company is uh, any more or, or less risky than a biotech when it comes to job security, for example, I think job security comes from, you know, doing a good job and uh, being a a team player and and keeping up with your field. And and if you can do that, then there should be job opportunities, hopefully. And that is in some ways a little bit independent of whether it's a company of 100,000 or whether it's a company of of fifty. I think the other thing I would say is that uh, coming into biotech, there's an opportunity and an expectation to wear many hats. So in large pharma, I think the tendency is to have you know very specialized scientists who who are working in areas where they have fantastic knowledge and, and depth. Uh, that's certainly true in in biotech, but also there's an expectation that you're doing many other things as well. And for me, this is one of the more exciting aspects of of working in biotech. I'm not just focused solely on the the science every day, but uh, I'm working with Robert and the team, uh, with investors and analysts and bankers. And I, I met somebody from former company about six months after I joined Fulcrum, and they asked me, you know, how was I finding it? What what was my day like. And I said, my day is, is fantastic. You know, one minute I could be talking about the three-year scientific strategy with the board, and the next minute I could be unloading the dishwasher. And anything between those two extremes is how my day is filled. And, and you know, that's uh, particularly appealing to me. Uh, and you know, on that topic
1: of risk, we're all recording this, this podcast via Zoom uh, rather than in person uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we've been hearing quite a bit about how other industries have been significantly impacted over the last few weeks with sometimes 50% plus of workforces being laid off or furloughed. And we haven't really heard that in biotech just yet. And we saw that Flagship and Deerfield and Arch Ventures recently raised you know, $3 billion plus in new funds. Uh, would love to hear your thoughts on you know what do you think are the characteristics of biotech that perhaps make us a bit more immune to the macro environment right now
2: yeah i'm not i'm not sure we're completely immune to the macro environment but i think we're riding through a once in a several generational event here. And I think the funds that have been raised and the, even the f- couple of recent IPOs that have gone out in the last week or two being oversubscribed and really, really just indicating that the, that the fundamentals of the industry seem to still be quite healthy. That is the fundamentals that there are investors willing to put money at risk. They're willing because of the rewards that good science is going to bring. I think many people have said the science and the excitement in, around the biopharma industry has never been greater because of a, the keen understandings. And I think, I think we're seeing that uh, with the support that the companies are getting. And that kind of support in this period of uncertainty has led to some stability. I think the other thing is many, maybe everybody in the biopharma industry, biotech industry, is just committed to the mission that they have of bringing a relief to to human suffering, and and that helps you ride through some of the rough times like we're all experiencing. Wonderful,
0: yeah. You know, I, I think that's certainly as a thread that ties us all together. Uh, for those of us, I guess, who work in the domain. You know, given that uh, you guys sort of thought actively about financing and had a lot of foresight in terms of when it comes to going public, uh, as companies sort of seek to tap the public markets, hopefully after this crisis abates, any advice you could share with those entrepreneurs and, and CEOs as they seek to go down that path?
2: Yeah, I, I think a couple of points come to mind. I think the first is one I've already made, which is be, just be sure that you've got a compelling scientific story that is addressing a real need and is based on rigorous and robust science. That That's just the most important thing. I, I think the, the, uh, the second thing is to keep in mind that we are fundamentally an industry that creates value. It creates value for patients. It creates value for investors. It creates a life value for people people by having one of the most satisfying jobs you can imagine, one of the most frustrating, but one of the most satisfying. And you have to keep in mind the value creating horizon you have for for each of those constituencies, but they happen to overlap. You create value for your investors by creating value for patients. I mentioned earlier that I spent my first 20 plus years of my career at Merck, and there is a... Uh, that George Merck, who was one of the founding families of Merck, used to say, which is creating value for patients leads to creating value for investors. And I think he said those who have never failed to forget that have never failed to create value for both parties. I'm paraphrasing. That's, that's really still true. Um, have a compelling scientific story. Be sure you're creating value for patients because then investors will give you the money to create value for them.
0: Awesome. Uh, I think a great way to close out today's interview. Robert Owen, thank you both so much for joining us today. Would love to uh, have you guys back on um, in the future, especially as your FSHD and other programs uh, evolve.
2: Great. Thank you very much. Thanks both.
0: Thanks. Thank you for listening to
1: this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.